Romans chapter 12. And I'll just ask that you remain standing for the reading of Scripture. Romans chapter 12. I'll begin reading at verse 1, and we'll read through verse 8. And the text for this morning is verses 3 through 8. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them, if prophecy let us prophesy in proportion to our faith or ministry. Let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And so the reading of God's word, let us pray. Lord, we thank you Again, for the opportunity to read from your word, to hear it proclaimed to us, we do pray that your spirit would bless it now, especially the preaching of it, so that you would work in our hearts and form us as we've already asked, form us to be like you in your image, like the image of your dear son, in whose name we do pray, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so how are we serving in the body of Christ, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? That is the question that should be raised after reading this text in God's Word. And as we've seen beginning at chapter 12 in the first two verses, Christian teaching, Christian doctrine must have application. The Apostle Paul has spent 11 chapters in his letter to the Romans rehearsing the major doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he then begs, he urges all those who hear it, that by the mercies of God, they offer their bodies a living sacrifice. And we looked at that last time. That, as verse 2 says, we are not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so we saw that really all of life is worship. The word service here can mean worship to God. All of life is not corporate worship, what we do now on the Lord's Day, that is at this moment. But we offer our lives a living sacrifice continually to God in light of the mercy He has shown us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now, beginning of verse 3, Paul begins to tell us, one way that we can offer our bodies a living sacrifice. He shows us how we might think in order to please God. He shifts the focus from ourselves to 
others. And if that sounds familiar, it's because that was the attitude of our Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God, Philippians 2 says, but he took upon himself, in all humility, took upon himself the form of a bondservant, human flesh, and came and lived and died for us, his people. And so, really, we have a call to selflessness here, but it's more than that. Uh, Paul, in these verses, discusses several of those things we call spiritual gifts. And uh, we're going to talk about those this morning briefly, but we're going to look at what the apostle says here. And so, there are basically three headings I would like for us to consider as we look at verses 3 through 8 this morning. The first one is that we have here a call to a sober self-assessment. That's there in verse 3. For I say, he says, I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. And so notice how he singles out everybody at the church in Rome to everyone who is among you. And then at the end of the verse, he says, God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. And so Paul, he puts it in the negative and then the positive as far as what we are to think, what we are to consider. And he says there, we are not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. The word there means to think above, and the idea is arrogance. We are not to be arrogant as the people of God. No man is to be arrogant. God hates pride. He resists the proud. Proverbs 6 says it. It's all through the Bible. And the point is, we are to think of ourselves, to see ourselves as we are in Christ. And how He has gifted us, we'll see. And so he says, we are to think soberly, clearly, sensibly, accurately. That's the idea. We are to think soberly, accurately, clearly, reasonably of ourselves, it's implied, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. And so here, God has dealt to each Christian a measure of faith. Now, it is true that we all have different degrees of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Some have great faith. As Jesus told his disciples at one point, some have little faith. He talked about one soldier. I've not seen such faith in all of Israel. We have different degrees of faith. And the Word of God, Romans 10 says, um, increases and brings about our faith. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. And so it is possible, and it is our duty as Christians to grow our faith in God through the means He's given to us, prayer and the Word and that sort of thing. But if we look at the context here, and we see what he's talking about, these gifts in the church, I think, according to the context, when he talks about um, God dealing with people in this way, giving each one a measure of faith, I think he's talking about a gift. That God has equipped us as Christians with certain gifts for specific reasons, as we'll see in just a moment. 
So we're called to this, this sober, this honest self-assessment. We are not to think that we have such gifts that we do not possess, nor are we to overlook any of the gifts that we do possess as God's people. And so this is a call to see how you and I, as Christians, those born again by the Spirit, those believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, to see how we have been gifted by God in this way. And so that brings us to the second thing, the reason for this assessment. Why does Paul get their attention? Why does God get our attention in this way today to think soberly of ourselves and to see what gifts we might have as Christians? Well, that's there in verses 4 through 6. And the idea is this, that every Christian has been equipped to serve other Christians. That's what really the message is here Every Christian has been equipped by God to serve other Christians. And we've been given this measure of faith as he puts it there in verse 3. And so then Paul begins by using a metaphor, this comparison, and uh, he compares the church of Jesus Christ, the ecclesia, the ones called out from the world by the ministry of the gospel, it's preaching the word of God and the spirit of God. He, he refers to the church as what? A body. The body of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there are other analogies uh, between uh, Christ and his church and that relationship there. There's Ephesians 5. It talks about the, the husband and the wife. We are the bride of Christ. In John 15, there's the vine and the branches. Jesus is the vine that produces the life-giving sap. We are the branches that branch off from him. We have union in him, and so we are to bear much fruit. Well, here, the church is described as a body of Christ. If you look at verse 4, he says, For as we have many members in one body. So we, we have many members in one body. Members means body parts, perhaps limbs or fingers or eyes or toes. That's what members refers to. Remember earlier in chapter 6, he says, Do not yield your members as slaves to unrighteousness. Don't yield your body parts. Don't commit sin with your body, especially in a heathen and Gentile, unbelieving, sexually perverted culture. And so here he says in verse 4, we have many members in one body. He's talking about our human body. So just as that is true, he says, but all the members do not have the same function. So we, verse 5, now he's, now he's talking about the church. In verse 4, he's talking about the human, human body. In verse 5, he's talking about the church. So verse 5 says, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So back to verse 4, all of our body parts coming together make up one body. And all of these body parts, these members, do not have the same function. They don't have the same purpose. I mean, sometimes, okay, if you think about driving down the road with your hands, theoretically, you're supposed to drive with your hands. Now, sometimes some of us may 
drive with our knees. Maybe we're doing things we shouldn't. And uh, that's not the purpose in that context of the knee. It's the purpose of the hand. And so he gets us to think about these things. And so there in verse 5, he says, So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And so this is true, no doubt, if you look at the lesser and go to the greater, if you look at the, the church universal, the church, all the Christians on earth, sure, that's, that's the case. But Paul here, I think, is focusing on a particular group of believers in a certain place at a certain time, all of those Christians at Rome at the time of the writing of his letter. So he's talking about the local church. And we've all been placed in the local church sovereignly by God. Yes, we've made decisions and choices, but we wouldn't have made those decisions, those choices without God working in our hearts first and in his providence and all of that. God has placed us in the local body of Christ. And so as you think about this analogy, children, that the church of Jesus Christ is the body of Christ, it's a comparison. It's not actual Jesus has right now a physical body, and he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. This is just an illustration. And so think about the illustration. Think about a soccer player, right? Some of you play soccer. And think about how the body functions. So there's, there's one goal, uh, one purpose, one object in soccer. That is to get the, the ball down the field in the opponent's goal. And so as a soccer player is running downfield with the ball, there's his head. And the head is uh, full of the mind. It has the brain in there, and and that's command central. And there's a lot going on controlling the rest of the body. And then we might think of the eyes. The eyes judge the distance that is before us, that's to the side of us through our peripheral vision. And then there's the lungs. As you pick up speed, you begin to breathe harder. Your lung then supplies oxygen to the various parts of your body, uh, providing strength. And then there's the hands. You're not supposed to touch the ball, but the hands provide balance when you run. And then there's the legs, which allow the body to advance forward towards the opponent's goal, downfield. And then there are the feet, really an extension of the legs, allowing you to control the ball as you dribble it down field. And then there are the toes, the toes which, as your body leans to the left to outmaneuver, outmaneuver your opponent, dig into the ground so that you might swiftly make your move. And then you lift your leg back using your torso and your thigh to strike at just the right time kicking the ball with the side of your foot so that as the ball goes in the air, it curves around the goalie into the goal, theoretically. And so you can see how all of these body parts in that scenario function. They have a purpose. They work together. You know, the hand isn't over here slapping the leg, trying to stop it and prevent it from going downfield. No, they're working together in unison. They're different. And so it is with the body of Christ. We're, we're different. You know, this morning, I've already mentioned this to you. It was a beautiful morning to, to some and maybe not so beautiful to others. We're different in that way. And yet here we are serving together. We have the common bond of Christ. We have the common unity by the Holy Spirit. And so we, we advance 
the work of the kingdom together. And so that's what Paul is getting at here. And so then the church is the body of Christ figuratively. As Paul says elsewhere in Ephesians 5.23, Christ is the what? Head of the body. And so that means he's command central. He controls the rest of the body. He gives the commands. Of course, he does that through his word, but that's the idea. And then we are all the, the various body parts or members of his body figuratively. And we serve different roles, different functions. And we, we do not all have the same role or function in the body. Imagine if, if someone had a human body and they had four legs with four right feet. That would be odd, to say the least, and their body would not function very well. So hold your finger there in uh, Romans and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 because I need to read a few verses to you. Roman, or 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning of verse 4. You know, if there was ever a church that glorified the gifts over the giver, that would be um, the church at Corinth. And the reason they glorified the gifts is because they wanted to glorify self. And Paul addresses this, and it's quite interesting that in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians and chapter 14 of Corinthians, he addresses the abuse in that church of spiritual gifts. But what is in the middle? Chapter 13, the love chapter. And so he gets right to the heart of the, the issue there. But he's talking, he's teaching about gifts in chapter 12, 1 Corinthians. And beginning of verse 4, he says, There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit to another, the word of knowledge through the same Spirit to another, faith by the same Spirit to another, gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills. And so here Paul, we'll, we'll come back to this in a moment, but Paul lists more of these gifts that the Spirit gives, and he shows us here that there is a diversity of these gifts. A little later, he'll ask the question, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles? And yet we come together, we're united by faith and by the Spirit of God together because we have that common bond in the Lord Jesus Christ being united to Him. And so as we think about the exercise of these gifts in the local body, the body of Christ, the church, we ought to think about sharing. You know, in, in an entitled, or at least a philosophically entitled culture, um, sharing is a misunderstood and abused concept. You owe it to me, now give it up. Whereas in Scripture, the idea is we do it voluntarily, out of the abundance of our heart. 
We love God and we love neighbor. Those are the two greatest commandments, Jesus said. And so we share in our gifts with one another in the body of Christ. And this is what our Savior has taught us, isn't it? In John 13, in the upper room, he's washing the dirty, perhaps smelly feet of the disciples. And that's what a servant did. He stooped down to be a servant. And he did that. And then he says this in verse 14 of John 13. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. And so did Christ mean we literally are to have feet washings at the church? Some Christians practice that. I don't think so. I think, like he said, he gave us an example that we are to serve and that there is no task too dirty, too mundane, too below us to do in the body of Christ. Perhaps cleaning toilets may be a service that someone could do in the body of Christ at some point. And so then the question is, how then do we contribute to the body of Christ? How are we to serve Christ by serving one another? And that's, that's the question. So if you go back to Romans, look at verse 6. How are we to serve Christ by serving one another? Verse 6 of chapter 12 in Romans. Having then gifts... Differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. And if your Bible has that phrase, let us use them in italics, it's because it is implied. It's not in the original, but the force is there. And so legitimately, the words are in your English Bible. So you see what he says. Since we have these gifts, let us use them. Put them to practice. And so then, let's talk about the third thing this morning. Using and identifying these gifts. Again, in verse 6, he calls us, God himself, Christ himself, through the apostle, calls us to put into practice those gifts that he, through his spirit, has given to us. Now, Paul begins to identify here a partial list of those gifts that were in existence in the early Christian apostolic church. It's not a full list he has here. We, we see that when we look at the other places in the New Testament that describe or list these gifts, their, their catalog. And so as we begin to, to discuss them, ask yourself, how, how have I been gifted to serve in the body of Christ? Because remember, it's not all about just being a theological, doctrinal sponge. You know, taking a lot of notes, which is great, and listening to sermons and teachings and going to conferences here and there. As we read earlier, faith without works is dead. As we see in Paul's letters, there's doctrine, there's teaching, but then it all comes to uh, a head, so to speak, where it's applied, where the rubber meets the road. And so that's the Christian life, doctrine and application of doctrine. He says, let us use them. Well, if you look at verse 6, he says, Having 
then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. So these are gifts. They're differing gifts. They're according to the grace that is given to us. And so as Christians, God has shed his grace on us through the Lord Jesus Christ. As he sheds his grace on us through the Lord Jesus Christ, he also equips us to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. And so that's what Paul's getting at. If you go back to verse 3, he says, For I say, through the grace given to me. What does he mean by that? Well, yeah, he means that God shed, he, he has shown to Paul his unmerited favor through the Lord Jesus Christ, but also Christ gifted Paul and gave him an office, the office of apostle. And so Paul is saying, through his apostleship, listen to what I have to say as one representing the Lord Jesus Christ through the grace given to me. So down there in verse 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, that is where he is going. And so he says, if prophecy, let us prophesy, and he goes on. Now, before we dive in, let me just say that uh, the older commentators, many if not most of them, and Reformed commentators of yesterday, when they look at a list like this, they will see these gifts, and they will say that these gifts correspond with the various offices in the church, you know, pastor, elder, evangelist, deacon. And I will say that I agree with that, but I don't think that they all relate to that. In other words, I think it's possible for Christians to have some of these gifts and yet not be called to be a pastor, teacher, evangelist, elder, or deacon, if that makes sense. And so, just keep that on the back burner as as we look at these gifts here. And I say that again, verses 3 and 5 and 6. Verse 3, he says, to everyone. He's addressing everyone in the church. And in verse 6, again, he talks about the grace that is given to us. He's singling out everyone, every Christian at the church in Rome. Okay? And so let me say a few things about these gifts well, I will say this to begin with. Um, although it is true that most Christians will not be called to church office or church leadership, I do believe Scripture teaches that in some way Christ, by His Spirit, has gifted every Christian to serve in some way. And that's pretty much been the sermon up to this point. I've said it in different ways, I think, maybe. And so there, there you go. Um, in 1 Corinthians 12, let me just read from that again. Verse 7, I don't want to get too bogged down, but he does say, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. So there it is again. Uh, the Spirit is manifested in the church through these spiritual gifts. And so if the local church is not serving one another, then we could say it's a dying or dead church. It's not a spiritual church. And then in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 12, he says, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. It's the sovereign distribution of the Spirit. He gives to each Christian as he wills at least one of these gifts. Now, 
And so we call them spiritual gifts because they're given to us by the Spirit. And by the way, if you're back in Romans chapter 12, verse 6, he says, then having gifts, having charismata, we are the charismatics, okay? Uh, Every Christian has been gifted with a gift of the Spirit. And I don't mean to redefine the word charismatic. I'm just saying the word charisma is grace or gift in the Greek. And Paul here refers to the charismata, these gifts. Nor do I mean to imply that every gift, as we'll see, is legitimate for today, such as speaking in tongues, performing miracles, and all of these things. And so no Christian has all of the gifts. I've already read 1 Corinthians 12, 29, or all apostles, prophets, teachers, and workers of miracles. And so as we think about that, that not every Christian has all of the gifts, we need to think about that as the church at points in her life nominates men for office, whether it be elder, pastor, deacon, whatever, uh, because there has been that mentality, oh, if we can just get Mr. So-and-so to come on the board of deacons, he'll really get involved in the church, and that's getting it backwards. As it says in First Timothy, these men must be showing these things. They must be tested, yes, but they must already be in existence. They're, they're gifts, and they must be evident to, to men and to the church of Christ. But when we also consider that not all are apostles, not all are teachers, and so forth. John Murray had a few words of wisdom for us, and let me just read them to you. He said, If we consider ourselves to possess gifts we do not have, then we have an inflated notion of our place and function. We sin by esteeming ourselves beyond what we are. But if we underestimate then we are refusing to acknowledge God's grace and we fail to exercise that which God has dispensed for our own sanctification and that of others. To put it plainly, if we do not do what Paul tells us to do here, to have a right, accurate assessment of ourselves and the gifts that God has given to us, then we are in sin. Now, as far as the purpose of these gifts, they are, it's implied here in Romans 12, they are for the benefit of the whole church. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, explicitly, this is what it says. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. It's for service, to build up, to edify the church of Jesus Christ. That's why He's given us these gifts. It's not to bring glory to ourselves. That's what was going on at Corinth and 1 Corinthians 15. If, if 1 Corinthians teaches us anything, it teaches us that spiritual gifts can be abused, misused, and terribly misunderstood. And they have. And so what are they? Well, there are basically four passages in Scripture. I always think of the twelves and the fours. Twelves and the fours. Two twelves, two fours. Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. So those are the passages you can put together, a catalog of spiritual gifts, and there's roughly 19 of them listed in the New Testament. Now, this is important. Some are temporary. Some were temporary for the early church, and some were more permanent for the church until Jesus Christ comes back. 
How do I know that? I'll just list two scriptures for you. Ephesians 2.20. Paul's talking about the temple, the church. He compares it to a temple like the Old Testament there, the household of God, the church. And he says, quote, having been built, the church, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. There has been a foundation of the church of Christ laid 2,000 years ago, and it was laid with the, the apostles and prophets and Jesus Christ being the, the, the chief cornerstone. So you build on top of that. You don't lay a foundation and then put another foundation on top. So the office of, there's, there's, man, there's so much we could say about gifts. But to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, when you look at the New Testament, you had to be called by Christ, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. You had to be called by Him and uh, have the gifts necessary to go along with the office. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 10, Paul's talking about the, the primacy, the preeminence of love. And he says, desire love above all things. And he's making this point that, look, these gifts, they're helpful, yes, but, but you've latched on to them, not to, to love and not to Christ. And, and he points out that these gifts aren't going to be around forever. And so he talks about prophecy and tongues and knowledge. He says, um, they're going to go away. We prophesy in part, we know in part, but when that which is perfect has come, that which is imperfect, incomplete, shall be done away. I think he's talking about the completion of the New Testament. That's the completion of the Bible when you think about what he says there. And so there was the need for these revelatory gifts in the early church because they did, they did not have the complete Word of God. And so Christians at Rome may have needed a word from God. I know that sounds funny coming from a Presbyterian, but it did happen. Uh, they needed a word from God, and so the prophet would speak. He would give counsel. He might even foretell an event to come, or he would say, this is the will of God for you. And uh, we could go off into that, but, but you need to, to note that. And so back in Romans 12, beginning of verse 6, he lists these, these gifts. The first one there is, is prophecy. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Prophecy, the gift of prophecy, and the prophet was the organ of revelation for God. Now, we often think of foretelling the truth like the Old Testament prophets would foretell the coming of Christ, and, and that was certainly part of the prophet's role. But it was also to simply speak the Word of God. I have a Word of God for you. Listen to what God says. In fact, the Old Testament prophets would start how? Quite often. Thus says the Lord. And so it was even in the New Testament as well. And he says here, in proportion to our faith, the analogy of our faith, and uh, many understand that I agree with them. What Paul means here is that the prophet was not to go beyond that which God had given him to speak. He was to speak the word of God alone. And not come over here and say, by the way, here's, here's, I think he meant this. No, he was to speak word for word what he had received from God. And in Isaiah 20, it says there, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, because it is because there is no light in them. Again, this is one of those temporary gifts of the New Testament. In, in Acts chapter 2, 
Uh, Peter stands up at Pentecost. You know, they're speaking in tongues there, all this. And Peter says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Joel chapter 2. Your sons and your daughters, they shall prophesy. And so that was a sign that the Messiah had come. That the early uh, Christian church had begun or the church had reached maturity, however you want to put it. And then here, there is the gift of ministry. The word is diakonia. Diakonos is sometimes another word used with ministry. It's the word from which we get deacon. Um, the word means to serve. And so some say, well, this might be related to the office of deacon. Others say it could be related to the office of the ministry of the word. After all, there's prophecy. Then he mentions ministry. What does he mention after that? Teaching, exhorting, all ministries of the word. In fact, in Acts 6 and verse 4, the apostles said, we will give ourselves continually to prayer in the ministry of what? The word, the service of the word. And so that's what a teacher does. He serves up the word of God and a preacher as well. Then he talks about teaching here. Didascalia, didascalos is teaching. The teacher is the one who expounds the Word of God. He explains the Word of God. There's more of an emphasis of understanding what God has revealed. By the way, that's really preaching is explaining, teaching the Word of God, and what comes next here, exhorting, applying the Word of God, giving consolation. So he mentions as well, in verse 8, exhorting. It means to console, to encourage. Remember Barnabas, Acts chapter 15, the son of what? Encouragement. He was an exhorter. In fact, Barnabas and Paul had a rift because of John Mark. Uh, Paul didn't think he was very useful. And so, Barnabas and Paul disagreed, so Barnabas and Paul, they departed ways, and yet we find Paul all alone in prison at the end of his life, and in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, send John Mark to me, for he is useful for ministry. I I have to believe that, that Barnabas helped that relationship to heal and to come back together. He was the encourager. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? You know, Paul, I'm not going to say Paul was wrong because I'll have to meet him in heaven. And he'd be like, Kevin, you said this, you said that, right? That's not true. Okay. But can you imagine seeking to serve and to help with the ministry of the gospel? And Paul says, I don't need you. Barnabas, the encourager, comes along and helps him. Look, Paul, he's a great guy. He's called by Christ. He's he's one of those strong personalities, okay? He just speaks whatever comes to his mind. He's got the inspiration of the Spirit, da-da-da-da-da. And maybe you've been stung by some words of others, and someone comes alongside of you and says, Look, think about what they're saying. It's it's true. It hurts. Yeah, but you've got to get back up and press on. Some of you are encouragers. Or you've been encouraged by others. And we need that in the body of Christ. 
Then he talks about giving with liberality. The idea here is sincerity, generosity, that is from the heart. For the Lord loves what? A cheerful giver. Also, when someone gives to the church financially, it must be from the heart. Why? Because sometimes people give with an ulterior motive to control the direction of the church or to have their name on a brick or window pane somewhere in the church. And so we need to be careful. Jesus says, don't let the right hand know what the left hand is doing when you give. Give to God in the presence of God. And so we, we don't ignore the service of others in the church. We thank them for it, but we always give praise to who? To God. That's why if you, if you ever hear me say, I'm so thankful for what you did, that means, boy, a girl, but I'm giving God the glory for it because he put it in your heart to do that. Keep on doing it. And that's the way I think it, it should be. He mentions leading here. This, no doubt, refers to the government of the church. It means rule, to lead, to direct. In fact, in 1 Timothy 5, 17, it says, Let the elders who, what? Rule well. Be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in word and doctrine. He mentions mercy here. And these are the ones ministering to those in need. In Acts chapter 6, that's where we see the rise of the office of deacon in the New Testament church. There was a physical need concerning certain widows and the daily distribution. So they were to pick out these men full of wisdom. Stephen was one of them. And they served the physical needs of the church. And, and by the way, we don't believe in female deacons here in that office. And yet in the New Testament, I think in Romans 15, Paul will refer to Phoebe. In the Greek, he calls her a deaconess. That means she's a servant. And so we're all to be servants, following the, the service of Christ and the example he has given. The deacons, they oversee it, and they give us opportunities for it, maybe ones we don't see. And so they lead us in that. But we're all to be servants. But some might have the gift of service. They want to be here. They want to help set up. They want to help break down. They want to dig ditches around the, the building for good reasons, I guess. Whatever it might be, they want to serve. You've known people like that, some of you. Or like that. And so these are just some of the gifts mentioned here. You know, I was thinking about it earlier, and many years ago, I want to say 30 years ago, I, I started at Georgia State University. I didn't end up graduating from that college. I transferred, but while I was there, I was a, um, a member of the BSU there, and, and they gave us this spiritual gift inventory sheet. And at that time, it was helpful. I was pretty pretty much a new Christian at that time. And and they asked all these questions. You fill out all these, these questions, answer them. And by the end of it all, it'll tell you, well, this is your gift. This is your gift. Or you have this gift and that gift. And those can be helpful, but they're not always accurate. Because what men have done, they've simply gone to the scriptures, looked up these gifts and said, okay, who might have these gifts? And well, let's ask questions to help them determine if they have it. And, and that's all they've done. Uh, but what if there's gifts on there that are no longer in existence? in the church today. So you have to be careful. And so then as we think about all of this and what Paul does here, this is all part of that doctrine we call the communion of the saints. 
that we who are Christians are united to the Lord Jesus Christ, and because we are all united to Him, we are all what? United together. And we are to exercise service to other Christians. In fact, our own confession of faith, speaking about this, speaking of Christians, it says that they have, quote, communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. And so in light of that, Christian, I ask you, how are you serving in the body of Christ. I know many of us serve in multiple ways. But let me ask it another way. How has the Spirit of Christ gifted you to serve? And if you know what that is, are you utilizing that gift? That's the question. And you say, I don't know, Kevin. I don't know what the gift is. How do I know? Well, first of all, I can say this. If there's a need in the congregation and you have the ability to fill that need, you're the person. But there's more to it than that. Specifically, when you are walking with the Lord and you're walking, as we say, with the Spirit, Galatians 5, when you're full of the Word of Christ, Colossians 3.16, and you're close to the Lord, what is it that you desire to do in the body of Christ? How would you enjoy serving in the church, serving biblically speaking? Through prayer, through service, through teaching, through encouragement, or any of these other ways that are mentioned in the New Testament. Again, some of these gifts were temporary. I'm not talking about tongues and all that. And so you ask yourself that question. And if you're not living close to the Lord, then, like I mentioned last week, repentance is a grace of God. Repent and live close to the Lord. And see what He will do. And also get confirmation from other Christians. Christians that know you well, who have been around for a while and have some wisdom, can say, yeah, you would be good at such and such. And then there are the elders of the church as well who can be involved in that process. Let me just say then, if you're a non-Christian or if you know a non-Christian, non-Christians do not possess these gifts. Non-Christians are dead in their sins and trespasses. They haven't been born again. Therefore, they haven't been born of the Spirit and and received the grace of God in these gifts. But I can say this, that if a non-Christian, if you're a non-Christian, you come to Christ, He will, by His Spirit, place you in the body of Christ. He will, by His Spirit, gift you in a way that you can have community and service and, yes, belonging in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ so that you will have a part in this wonderful community of redeemed sinners who are seeking to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and serve one another. And this is what the city of man is trying to produce in our day and time, isn't it? They're trying to produce it by compulsion, but as Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.5, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart and a good conscience 
and a sincere faith. These things can only be produced by the Spirit of Christ who works in our hearts according to God's grace. Let's pray together.